week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about a nasty fight in the Texas Senate, Beto O'Rourke's self-described funk, and the legal debate over a citizenship question in the 2020 census. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. Harmony Public Schools, Texas's largest STEM-focused free charter school system, is accepting applications now at campuses statewide. Visit HarmonyTX.org to see why the TEA awarded Harmony 6A ratings for 2018. And the 101, the new standard for higher education polling in Texas. Learn more at texas.wgu.edu slash poll. Do I have to talk you in your head? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a long Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, January 23rd with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by uh, courts reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hello. By demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And by political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And as always, we're taking your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay. Emma, I can't wait to talk about it. I want to start with the drama that erupted in the Texas Senate this week. We had had so much kumbaya, so much decorum, and then suddenly um, ass-kissing joined the fray. (laughs) What happened? Or the lack thereof, maybe. (laughs) Um, So this, this story starts on Friday when Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick released committee assignments for the Senate for the 86th legislature. We're, you know, closely watching this. We think that, you know, everyone within a one block radius of the Capitol really cares about this stuff and basically no one else. But um, one... <laughs> so if you're listening, right? No, no offense My to... My friend in London called me about this yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. maybe just uh, Patrick's speed dial there, but... Perhaps the biggest shakeup was that Kel Seliger, Republican of Amarillo, who has uh, for a long time led the Senate Higher Education Committee, was not only taken off that committee, uh, lost his chairmanship of that committee, but also lost his spot on the powerful Budget Writing Finance Committee. Instead, he was appointed to chair a new agriculture committee in the Senate, which had sort of splintered off from a larger committee last session that was agriculture, water, and rural affairs. So he was basically being kicked to the curb over what? His more moderate views, sparring with the lieutenant governor, what? Uh, That's certainly what he would say. He described this, he gave me a call Friday afternoon shortly after the assignments came out and said, you know, this is a clear warning from the lieutenant governor that if you sort of stray from his priorities, he had memorably voted against two of Dan Patrick's priorities in 2017, you will be punished and this is what it will look like. Uh, the Lieutenant Governor's office countered that, you know, agriculture is of course an important issue in Amarillo where uh, Senator Seliger is from. And an aide to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Sherry Sylvester said in an email to me, sort of in response to Seliger's comments, if he feels that the ag committee is beneath him, we'll be happy to appoint someone else. And this is a high-ranking, uh, you know, official in the lieutenant governor's office. Sherry Senior Sylvester advisor has been with him for a while. Yeah, absolutely. So w- we all thought that was where it ended. Uh, we went home to our weekends, and then never—that's never where. <laughs> also, Patrick doesn't have Patrick a weekend. Yeah, right. I'll, yeah. Um, over the weekend, the senator went on a radio show, the other side of Texas, based in West Texas, and uh, made a comment to the effect of. Um, I'll use his phrasing, which was he has a suggestion for Miss Sylvester involving her lips and his back end. Uh, that was the cleaned up for radio version, as we understand it. Um, which is a really just cr- kind of creepy way to phrase it. Like, you shouldn't <laughs> be talking about anyone's lips, right? It's just no. <laughs> right. keep body parts out of it. Kiss my ass is like a more standard, you know. Eat my shorts or whatever. This is <laughs> this one is just more kiss my rear end is would have been acceptable for radio. Yes, right. I think. 
Uh, in any case, you know, to no one's surprise, Lieutenant Governor's office was not sort of thrilled with these comments. And yesterday, um, after a meeting between the Lieutenant Governor and Senator Seliger, Lieutenant Governor announced that, you know, because he had failed to apologize for these comments, he would be stripped of this Agriculture Committee chairmanship. So sort of another chapter in the drama. And then uh, the senator responded again, turn, correct? <laughs> yes, of course. The the final clap back for now, at least, uh, <laughs> where he said, you know, he's, he was disappointed to lose his leadership position on this committee. He's one of the more senior senators in the, Republic, in the Republican Party in the Senate. He's been, he was first elected in 2004. And he said, you know, let's be clear though about why I've lost this committee assignment. It's not because of this comment that the Lieutenant Governor finds rude, which he, he did apologize for. Um, but it's because I voted against Dan Patrick in the past. And this is, again, sort of political retribution. Yeah. And then in between here, just filling in the blanks, mm -hmm. you had, uh, he faced two primary challengers. Um, he won without a runoff. One of those primary challengers, his, the campaign was uh, run by, or at least involved with it, was Alan Blakemore, who was an advisor to the lieutenant governor. And so, of course, that continue, you know, adds to the, the tension, I think, between those two camps and uh, clearly, as you pointed out, there was some tension last session with him voting against some of uh, two of Patrick's uh, priorities. Yeah, and, and they, they but, were big priorities for Patrick, though. <laughs> yeah, so Seliger downplays them as uh, two out of thirty. Two but out they of were three. certainly high on Patrick's list. He, he said it was a point nine eight one batting right. average, which I, I believe is I good in sports. Some waiting uh, in those, those three priorities, but right. And so, I mean. Dan Patrick has really sort of, it seems like he's playing into sort of the Me Too movement a little bit with this really sort of stressing that these were comments made to, you know, inappropriate lewd, you think he called them lewd comments, the word lewd. made to a female staffer. How does this square with all of the, you know, ongoing drama in the Senate over another senator, Charles Schwartner, who uh, also gave up a committee chairmanship uh, over issues involving, you know, lewd text messages? Yeah, I mean, I think the lieutenant governor's choice of use of choice of words and using the word lewd to describe Seliger's comment was very intentional because that is the sort of language we've been using to describe the text messages and photos that Senator Shortner was accused of sending to a UT graduate student. So I don't, I mean, knowing how intentional the lieutenant governor often is in these statements, I, I don't think that was just sort of like, oh yeah, let's use that word. And I mean, joking aside, did is what Senator Seliger said inappropriate or rude? Sure. But I think there is a clear difference between what he said on a radio show and these allegations that have been brought against a senator that haven't been completely resolved and that the Senate actually hasn't done anything about. And so I think there are a lot of questions yesterday as to whether he was trying to frame these as sort of equivalent. Right, are these comparable things? Right. Someone saying, you know, basically to about a woman kiss my ass versus somebody who is, again, embroiled in what appears to yeah. be a sexting scandal, Right. And I think most people would probably argue that they're not. Mm -hmm. the, the word lewd stood out to me. I'll, be, I'll, I'll try to be delicate here, but there was also another <laughs> phrase in that <laughs> statement that stood out to me. He said that in Patrick's telling, he said that Seliger suggested that uh, Sherry Sylvester, quote, had it coming, which seemed to me to be another kind of allusion to the language that we've seen clearly around uh, sexual right, harassment and the Me Too movement. Sure. So I, I, did, I did find a lot of, in, a number of interesting turns of phrase in that, in that statement. Right, and the backdrop here being that sort of, even as we've seen the Texas House take up these issues and you know pass rules related to sexual harassment, the Senate has been quieter. And even in the case of Charles Schwartner, who you know, after a UT investigation was sort of inconclusive as to whether he had sent these 
lewd texts as alleged, um, the Lieutenant Governor's office wasn't explicit about whether that was why he was losing his his chairmanship, whether he had really initiated that conversation himself or whether the Lieutenant Governor had wanted to take away that leadership right. post from him. Yeah, we've specifically asked the Lieutenant Governor's office if he asked Shortner to give up his seat in light of these allegations and they haven't confirmed that. And I think if you're talking about a chamber that's, you know, has zero tolerance for any of this, I'd you know, you would think that you would make clear that there are repercussions to someone facing these sort of allegations. And the Senate hasn't done anything beyond revising a very thin policy that it had before. But, you know, compared to the House, which has now put investigations into independent entities of if members do face sexual harassment claims, the Senate has done very little on this issue, um, even though most of the allegations, most of the allegations that have named members have been out of the Senate. So uh, Patrick asks on social media, hopefully it's not Patrick's speech tag. <laughs> we see you on your phone over there. <laughs> or Dan Patrick. Uh, <laughs> can be confusing, honestly. <laughs> Didn't Seliger's political instincts turn out to be more accurate on those two policy breaks with Dan Patrick? Um, and I think he's specifically mentioning uh, school vouchers and the bathroom bill. Uh, no, <laughs> I think it's, no, no, no I'm, I'm responding to you. I think yep. the two issues were, School vouchers and then the property tax bill. The right. Oh, it was not bathrooms yeah. at all. Yeah, voted, voted for it. He voted for it. Yeah. Got it. All right. Yeah. But I, I, Patrick, our questioner is correct. I think you know the Senate version of what critics would call school vouchers. You know, did not pass in the House, and the two chambers failed to reach a deal on um, that sort of local property tax proposal where. Senator Selger had broken with the lieutenant governor. So, you know, whether that makes him correct, I, I, I'll leave to someone smarter than I am. Well, but. I mean, the uh, proof is in the pudding in that, you know, he went on to win, uh, you know, his primary outright, um, despite having two opponents that had um, two very, you know, I would, I would argue, credible and serious opponents. And so, you and know, he and Dan Patrick did wasn't, not, uh, they did not. He wasn't punished by his district for breaking on those two issues. Right. They did not endorse against each other, right? They've been very clear. Uh, Senator Selger was the only Republican in the Senate who did not endorse Dan Patrick's reelection, but they were both very clear that they were not putting their thumbs on the scale in each other's elections, despite, as Patrick described, the involvement of Patrick's uh, chief strategist who helped one of the challengers to Senator Seliger. There was no money changing hands. And so what does any of this mean for Seliger's future in the Senate this session? What does it mean for the, you know, the numbers game when, you know, big issues need to hit the floor? Well, it could sort of nullify the gain with the Pete Flota seat where he took that seat over from a Democrat because they... They need Seliger to get to the number of votes they need to bring a bill to the floor. And so if on any issue Democrats can get Seliger to sway against the Republican majority, it puts Dan Patrick in a tough spot, I think. Yeah, it yeah. Doesn't, doesn't seem like he's going to be incentivized necessarily to play nice on issues where he might have sort of, you know, held his nose in the past. Yeah, I think the, the issue that is the biggest consequence for that is, is property taxes. Um, I think, you know, it may be a little, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, he, cl he clearly could, could send a message by blocking some of these bills if he chooses to. At the end of the day, I think, you know, he's, he's still a, a Republican and I think he still faces the, the pressures that a Republican faces back home. I think that he clearly um, back home, you know, on, an, on, an, on local control issues, on property taxes, on, on vouchers, clearly is, is going to be willing to break with uh, the Senate. It doesn't look like this time around the Senate's going to be prioritizing vouchers uh, or that there's going to be kind of a critical vote where his vote is going to be, uh, could be decisive. So um, it'll be interesting to see, but um, 
you know, those were the two issues we broke last time. And so we'll see all those two issues, I think, manifest themselves this time. Well, uh, this session he may turn out to be incredibly smart because he is not going to have any early morning or late night committee hearings to be presiding over. <laughs> or many at all. Or afternoons. <laughs> as, as Ross Ramsey pointed out in his column too, if from, you know, through Patrick's perspective here, obviously you're sending a very clear message to other, to 30, 30 other members that this right. is what you happens. screw with me, you, you screw with my if people. You, if you cross me, so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, well, we also got this morning House committee assignments. Uh, anything equally dramatic in any of those chairmanships that y'all noticed? Definitely not equally. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to meet that bar. Yeah, what did we see, at least among the sort of biggest name committees, what were the news? What was the news this morning? Well, I think the first thing that was announced wasn't even a committee chairmanship. It was, or among the first things announced was that Joe Moody, a Democrat from El Paso, is going to be speaker pro tem. Um, you know, making a, a Democrat speaker pro tem, you know, sends a pretty clear message about, you know, trying to build a bipartisan uh, speakership. And so- in the vein of Joe Strauss. I mean, it seemed pretty sure, comparable exactly. in that regard. Yeah, and I mean, if, you know, the, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is like throughout the rest of the day, but if Joe Strauss had named a, a Democrat speaker pro tem, I'm, I'm sure then- I <laughs> think that would have gone yeah, as right. well. Some folks have been number. riding in the streets. It's right. a little more subdued this time around. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see how the, you know, the, the fallout is from that if there is one mm -hmm. on the right. Alexa, in sessions past, you've looked at the sort of demographic makeup of uh, committee chairmanships. Anything of note this time around, or does it look pretty standard, comparable to last session? I mean, Joe Strauss was pretty particular about keeping the chairs in the House in in a way that they reflected the overall demographics of the chamber itself. I haven't finished running the numbers, but I don't think it's going to end up skewing too far in one way or the other. Um, the Senate continues to be, you know, power is mostly held by white people and white men in particular. Um, you know, that's largely a function of Dan Patrick really giving most only, but I think only two chairs to Democrats, Democrats and the rest right. of Republicans who are all white except Pete Flores who did not get a chairmanship. And so um, the in the Senate, the numbers are... Still got some nice you. committee seats, though. For a he did. He did yeah. get quite a few committee seats. He's also up for re-election right. soon yeah, in a did. in a pretty tough district. Yeah, I think. exactly. All right. Well, Alexa, sticking with you, uh, I want to talk about the national debate playing out in multiple courtrooms, and soon it looks like going to be playing out in the Supreme Court uh, over whether to add a question on citizenship to the 2020 census. Uh, the Trump administration wants one. Which would it be the first of its kind? It wouldn't be the first of its kind. It would be the first in several decades um, that would be sent out to every household in the country. And it was going to be added to the questionnaire without any sort of real testing um, as to how it could affect turnout um, or not turnout, but rather responses by um, particularly immigrants and Hispanic households. Um, some of the research and in some of the filings and the, the legal ruling out of New York, actually, um, the judge there said that even the... the Trump administration's own evidence showed that including this question will depress turnout among Hispanics and immigrants, which obviously for Texas could, you know, carry quite a bit of a fallout. And talk about that fallout. I mean, what are the, so let's say that opponents of a citizenship question are right and it would depress, uh, you know, people responding to the census. What are the implications for states generally? What are the particular implications for a state like Texas? Well, so the census determines 
everything, you know, everything from political boundaries to how much money we got from the federal government to pay for the needs of our growing population. And so the stakes are extremely high in a state like Texas, where 39% of our population is Hispanic. We have millions of households that include at least one immigrant, families of mixed status. And so the concern is if you include this question, people aren't going to respond. And if you don't have those numbers, you jeopardize all of that money. You jeopardize that, you know, one or more of the three congressional seats that were projected to pick up after the next census. And you also mess up the political boundaries that we use to draw all of our districts and determine who gets elected where. And so the stakes are pretty high. The Senate Hispanic Caucus and the Mexican American Legislative Caucus are among the plaintiffs in the lawsuit that started this week in Maryland. They might not even get a ruling in that lawsuit before the Supreme Court takes this up and has the final word on this. But, you know, I think it's interesting to see what, if anything, state lawmakers will do. There is a bill to create a sort of complete count committee that basically would put some money into sort of like a public awareness campaign to make sure that people know that this is safe and that they should respond to this. Um, it could also be done by proclamation by the governor's office. Um, I have not heard back as to whether there is any interest on that and I don't think we will until this citizenship issue is resolved. And you know, even if you thought about doing it through legislative means, the author of that bill is Cesar Blanco of El Paso who I don't think has a great relationship with the new speaker. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll see if, if there's any traction there. But, you know, it, it could have huge implications for Texas and could affect both Democrats and Republicans in the same way. Do you, are you seeing uh, any bipartisan agreement on this particular issue or is it pretty much along party lines? Um, you know, early on when it was announced that they were going to include this question, uh, the AG, the Attorney General Ken Paxton very clearly said, I support this. Ted Cruz came out in support of it. Um, I haven't seen any public statements from the governor um, mm -hmm. up to now. And what's the rationale from you know supporters? What would be the benefits according to the Ken Paxton's or the Donald Trump's of the world of having a more accurate count of undocumented immigrants? So the idea is that if you have some sort of numbers attached to citizenship through the census that you can better enforce the Voting Rights Act. At least that's what was at first said. Um, the Secretary of Commerce said, you know, the DOJ asked for this later on because of the litigation. There have been a series of documents that have emerged in which it wasn't actually the DOJ who asked about it. Um, there were some conversations between the Secretary of Commerce and Trump senior officials um, sort of seemingly nudging him in this direction and then ask, actually asking the DOJ the DOJ to ask them to include the question. So there is quite a bit of fuzziness around their answer and the courts so far have sided against the Trump administration because they say their reasoning isn't legit. Obviously, we know a lot about the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. What are your projections on what would happen at that level? You know, I don't know. I don't know that this sort of question has gone up it's it's just a tough one because it's a it's a really technical argument. It's on the Administrative Procedures Act, mm -hmm. which is a very obscure part of federal law. I think to most people, if you're not sort of actively involved in following a lot of these, this litigation, so I really don't know. I mean, it's the sort of thing where it could come down to a technicality. It's it's really up in the air. But first, they have to decide whether they're going to take it up this term or not, which they would need to because the Census Bureau has said we need to know by June because we have to print our materials. That's the timeline to basically get things out the door by 2020. Right. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Bills Up Now is a legislative tracking service that allows anyone to stay up to date on the issues that matter most without sacrificing their schedules. Schedule a demo today at billsupnow.com. 
and Studio 919, where we're sitting right now, your <laughs> legislative meeting spot steps away from the Texas State Capitol. Book today at studio919.org. All right, Patrick, we don't go very long on this podcast without talking about Beto O'Rourke uh, or Beto O'Rourke's medium posts. Uh, and I would like to start with his latest one, uh, his sort of on the road again post, where he said he is uh, sadly in some kind of funk. What, uh, <laughs> what's going on with Beto O'Rourke? Yeah, so he spent most of last week on this road trip outside Texas, uh, by all appearances, to kind of find himself. <laughs> um, by and- all appearances or by all written appearances? <laughs> by all written appearances, <laughs> yes. too. Um, but he appeared to be traveling by himself, um, and he went uh, up through New Mexico, across the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles into Kansas, then over to Colorado, then back down through New Mexico, and he was back in back home in El Paso, I think, this weekend on, on Saturday morning. He was there for the Women's March. Um, but he was, uh, he's was he been writing these blog posts from the road on Medium, and the one you alluded to, I think, was one of the earlier ones where you know he talked about how he needed to get out on the road and clear his head because he said he uh, you know, had felt he was in a, in a funk. Um, or in and out of a funk recently. Nothing like the musings of a 40-year-old man. Unemployed. 40-year-old white unemployed man. Right. He said, maybe if I get moving on the road, meet some people. Right. Sounded uh, like a total, I mean, he's running, duh. Right. You don't I don't like- know. I actually think that, you know, if you read those posts, you see that he's, he doesn't mention obviously politics in those posts or talk about the presidential race even. Um, but I, I think he's, you know, you read those posts and he's definitely grappling with something. And, um, you know, I think that. Is he grappling with something or is he he's pretending to grapple with get something? Get on the highway to Iowa. Well, that's true. That's, that's certainly right. the cynical view of it. Um, yes, that, I know, have this, a highly cynical all for show. view. I think um, it is all for show. Sure. Sure. Well, You're not I can't help you then. That. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is, if you wanted the nation to believe that you were grappling with the question of whether or not to run and your mind wasn't made up because you're a guy who just lost a U.S. Senate race in Texas and, you know, who are you? You would totally play this out as like, you know, you're building the drama, right? It's, there's no, the narrative arc is so much stronger if you really wrestle with it and you tell everyone you're wrestling with it and there are every people step saying, of the way. And there are people this. saying, please, please. And you're going on, I mean- this bears a lot of resemblance to me to Hillary Clinton's like listening tour, right? When everybody knew she was running, but she hadn't officially announced that she was running. I'd actually, I would actually strongly disagree with that. Right. I, I think that. Oh, good. <laughs> strongly. I think that based on my what I'm hearing, based on my reporting, that he is uh, genuinely ambivalent about this, or that he is not um, broadcasting very widely what his actual intentions are. I think that to, to folks close to him. Um, he he does appear ambivalent and that he is being genuinely enigmatic. Um, Certainly there's the theory in the back of my, I share the, in the back of my head, I share the theory that you have, this is all for show. Um, But I I wouldn't, you know, I think that it's not as choreographed, I don't think as the Clinton listening tour was back then. Um, You know, and I, I think that there is a genuine mystery about whether he's going to, to do this based on just my reporting, I would say. Um, which, What's you know, your gut telling you? I don't know. I could totally see him pass on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then know, do what? And I think that he's at, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Patrick, I'm looking for answers, <laughs> not questions. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, you talk to some folks in the early voting states and they are just at this point, I think their patience is wearing maybe a little thin, you know, waiting to see what the next signal is from him. I mean, there's you know. a version of the story where he could go out to some of these early states and basically fundraise for people, right? I mean, he has, it seems like he has enough of a political star on him coming off of this sure. raise. Oh, he could definitely Democratic play a circles. surrogate type role right. this cycle, even if it's not in support of a singular candidate. I mean, he could definitely 
trap, you know, find a way to have a presence in the cycle without running. I think all eyes for now are on this February 5th interview that he's doing in New York with, with Oprah. With right. Oprah. And um, that's a real on the road again. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> driving up there. I'm going to just drive through no. in my truck. I'm going to stumble into a sit down interview with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I'm to see what happens. Right. Yeah, right. You know, and I, obviously, I, I don't expect him to announce on that show, but I, I think people are looking to that interview um, for maybe, you know, a, a, a new signal. His documentary is also premiering, right, premiering at, South at South by Southwest, Southwest in March, right. which is also you know, around the yeah. time that, you know. Right. But this is, you know, I think this is kind of, you know, we've been talking about a story here about how this is pretty consistent with the way he ran his Senate campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think, although I wasn't there for them, how he ran previous campaigns, which is really much, you know, kind of on his own terms mm-hmm. and not really following, um, you know, the expected political conventions. Um, and so... I'm not surprised that he's approaching this 20, you know, potential 2020 campaign uh, perhaps the same way. Mm-hmm. I think the big winner in all of this is Medium.com and all the clicks they're getting from <laughs> totally, political absolutely. reporters. Who knew that people were still I using media? I think the media's no, 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 a big no, winner no, too. We're all, well, I mean, sure, but I, <laughs> I didn't know people used Medium anymore. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, my skepticism is largely, or, well, I th- I think he will run because, and and not necessarily because I think he's a terrific candidate, but because like what else will he do at this point? I mean, to me, it's like you either take you have to take advantage of these moments that you, where you have this like insane right. spotlight and attention. You know, if he doesn't run now, I mean, I look at somebody like Julian Castro who had this big spotlight, you know, several years ago, and now he's running and he's like largely, you know, widely considered sort of an afterthought. I think, you know, I guess I wonder what happens to Beto's star power or even his, you know, next career move if he doesn't take advantage of this opportunity. I also will say, I don't know why you would schedule an interview with Oprah if you didn't have something to say. You know, whether it's- It's going to be really boring if he's just- exactly. In a funk. I mean, although who better to get you out of a funk than <laughs> Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> okay. If yeah. I were in a bad mood. Yeah, Maury is the next week. <laughs> that is totally who I would want. So, well, he's also got a lot, uh, he's got, you know, new names now in the running. I mean, how does the, what are you hearing among Texas Democrats when you've got, obviously, Julian Castro in the race? Now we've got Kirsten Gillibrand in the race. Right. I mean, I think among Texas Democrats, certainly, you know, there are some that are just waiting to see whether he's going to run before they make official any, you know, kind of alliances or who they're going to exclusively support. You know, it actually, in some ways, kind of mirrors the beginning of the, Repu- the Republican presidential cycle in Texas last time when you had Rick Perry was going to run, Ted mm-hmm. Cruz is going to run, you're going to have all these, Jeb Bush was going to run, you had all these Texas candidates uh, or these candidates with Texas ties, and you had donors, you know, in particular, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to give to all of them, you know, for now, or I'm going to, you know, host fundraisers for two of them, you know, and there wasn't a lot of, you know, exclusive endorsements being made. Um, but you did see, you know, Castro's announcement, you had, um, some people make pretty clear that they are exclusively behind him. A number of state reps who spoke there and who, who talked about it around the around the announcement. So I think everyone's still kind of in wait and see mode though in mm-hmm. Texas. Well, and you would think with everything that's on the table for 2020, that really a lot of their sites might be focused on some of these other races that are probably, you know, maybe a little bit more worth their time in terms of whether you can flip any of these seats into Democrat into the Democrats column, right? All right, well, we have a couple more minutes, so I'm just going to do a quick lightning round of sorts on some court rulings and legal filings that have percolated in the last week that are of interest. Um, Starting with you, Emma, a federal appeals court ruling that has changed the game yet again on Planned Parenthood's relationship with the Texas Medicaid program. What gives? Uh, So Planned Parenthood's sort of presence in Texas Medicaid is uncertain after this ruling last week from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals based in New Orleans. 
Texas in 2015, like many other states, uh, was sort of skeptical of Planned Parenthood after this Sting video, highly edited video was released, sort of alleging that Planned Parenthood practitioners were selling fetal remains for profit, uh, which they have consistently denied. For science, right? For science. Right. Um, selling selling re fetal remains in that way is illegal in Texas and they've denied doing it. Although there are some donations that go on, I guess. Um, a federal district court judge in 2017 in Austin ruled for Planned Parenthood. They said the state's case, you know, alleging that these were ethical violations that should exclude Planned Parenthood from the program were something along the lines the judge said of, you know, the building blocks of a great novel. Um, but uh, the federal appeals court strongly rebuked that. They said the trial judge in Austin didn't give sort of enough um, credence to what the state was saying and they sent it back to him for further review. So watch and wait, I guess. So watch and wait like either, I mean, basically the only next step is the Supreme Court, correct? Right now it comes back to this judge in Austin. Oh, it goes back, it's remanded. They've, they've sent it back to okay. him, yeah, to sort of look at it under a different standard that gives more deference to the state's position. Um, so we'll see. I mean, he didn't seem to have a lot of uh, respect for the state's position two years ago. Well, so, and this is year four of this fight. Right, so right? currently Planned Parenthood, just to keep us updated, <laughs> Planned Parenthood is or isn't allowed to be part, isn't currently part of the Texas Medicaid program. It is currently, um, but I think that that status is very much in question. And Planned Parenthood has said, you know, we, we pledge to continue this fight and emphasize sort of the important role that they play as practitioners for Texas women. Right, because none of those dollars go through to abortion services. And right, right, right. Those are, you know, women's health, reproductive right. health services. Uh, okay, Alexa, let's quickly talk redistricting. Uh, in legal filings this week, the Justice Department suggested it doesn't think Texas needs federal approval of its legislative and congressional maps, even though the state has a history of dis drawing discriminatory maps. What's the update there? Yeah, so in this long winding battle that has now um, covered two different administrations, um, the DOJ is basically looking to flip its position. At one point in 2013, it intervened in the case and said Texas needs to be back under preclearance, of which it was freed in 2013 when the Supreme Court ruled, uh, basically gutted the Voting Rights Act. So last week they filed and said, listen, we want to change our positions in this. At one point it was questionable whether they could because they were still plaintiffs technically in the case, not defendants. Um, but the federal judges in San Antonio overseeing the case let them flip. And so now they will be backing the state up um, in sort of the latest part of this legal saga that now focuses on whether Texas will be put back under federal supervision of its map drawing. Good grief. <laughs> all right, well, we will keep you updated on those issues here and at texastribune.org. That is all the time we have this week. Thanks to Harmony Public Schools, The 101, Bills Up Now, and Studio 919, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Emma, Alexa, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. <laughs>